KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, we take a look at the $640 million hole in Philadelphia's revenue and the mayor's proposed budget. Let me tell you, it hurts. If that department is going, so too is our goal. Cuts to arts and culture organizations rally the community. Using the arts as an economic generator makes more sense than taking money away. And alternatives. There's a practical approach that we could do that could put money back into these programs. We dig in. Then the Pennsylvania primary is June 2nd, and you may want to apply for that mail-in ballot. So we had to cancel all of those polling locations off the top. A Philly city commissioner talks about what election day could look like. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the mayor's painful proposed budget for Philadelphia. It will fill a nearly $650 million hole caused by COVID-19. In addition to layoffs and a hike in taxes, it would eliminate the Office of the Arts, Culture, and Creative Economy. It would cut a fifth of the mural arts budget and takes chunks from the budgets for the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the African American Museum of Philadelphia and many more. The groups are rallying to save the city's cultural scene. With me on Zoom to discuss this flashpoint is Sharon Pinkinson, Executive Director of the Greater Philadelphia Film Office. We have artist Danny Simmons, founder of the Rush Philanthropic Arts Foundation and Rush Arts Gallery. And we also have City of Philadelphia controller Rebecca Reinhardt, who has put forth a counter proposal to the mayor's budget. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Rebecca, before we get started, I just want you to kind of lay out the current proposal that's on the floor, um, the one that created a counter for it. Tell me what that proposal does specifically to the arts community. By way of of background, I mean, the city uh, of Philadelphia obviously is impacted greatly by this pandemic, just the way that cities and states across the country are. So the mayor's revised budget proposal that he released on May 1st is solving for a $649 million budget gap. This though is after spending increased by a billion dollars over the last five years. So what he proposed is a combination of using fund balance reserves, spending cuts, and tax increases. Some of the cuts are really severe. A few things stood out, right? I mean, one is, I don't think that you should be raising taxes on people unless you really have to. It should be a last resort uh, in a time when unemployment is the highest it's been since the Great Depression. Uh, But also some of the cuts, especially uh, to the arts and uh, some cuts around workforce development as well seem particularly severe. Most departments got cut around 5 or 10%. Police and fire did not get cut, but some got cut so much. The arts and culture office got just eliminated. Uh, that was about a $4 million budget item in past years. And that gives money to a lot of small community neighborhood-based organizations, arts organizations, Uh, the African-American Museum, all of that was just eliminated. And then also cuts to uh, workforce development, that office was eliminated. 
which seemed particularly severe given that people will need help getting back on their feet. Uh, and the Commerce Department was also 85% uh, cut there. So the, some of those are some of the cuts that stood out to me as being particularly uh, severe. Yeah, and we'll go over the alternative later. And so, um, Sharon, I want to bring you in here. Your office also uh, suffered some cuts. We realized when the mayor's budget proposal was released that entire departments in the city were eliminated. And one of them, two of them, we thought were entirely eliminated, which directly affected our ability to continue having a film industry in Philadelphia. That is the office of the city representative, which was eliminated entirely. And the reason that that was so draconian to us was because our small, very small grant from the city um, because it has been decreased year after year in this administration, or actually it's been level, but it had a big cut of a couple of years ago, is where our, our grant from the city is derived. So if that department is gone, so too is our grant. And we are subsisting on a very small amount of money because about four and a half, four years ago, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania eliminated grants to the two Pennsylvania film offices at Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. So those were very big hits of gov from government. And we are, we want to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. We are not a part of the problem. It's a very small grant and we provide tremendous numbers of employment in the city of Philadelphia. And all of those people working on films, like Dispatches from Elsewhere, which shot all of those episodes in the city of Philadelphia, everybody's paying taxes every day. We fill hotel rooms in the middle of the winter. Philadelphia is proud of all of this activity in filming and it's part of our civic pride. It's, it's kind of like a slap in the face on both sides. Um, and we're, uh, we're asking for very little um, and we have appealed to city council. Yeah, and tell me how much money are we talking about here, Sharon? just shy of $131,000. We asked for $200,000 for the first increase in any year was this year. Um, but when the mayor's budget proposal came out, we said, okay, you know, we'll stay. We'll stay with, uh, with the same that we've had flat for three years. But honestly, it's, it's, that's not even enough. We're going, we're going to have to make a lot of cuts in addition. And do fundraising and it's impossible to do fundraising in this environment. And Danny, I want to bring you in here because uh, mm -hmm. your arts organization, just like many other arts organizations in the city, rely on grants and funding. What strikes me about all of this is that, you know, I found out a lot of information when I was chairman of the state, New York State Council on the Arts. And one of the things that I found out is how much of an economic generator uh, the arts are. And the, the figures came back for every dollar that was invested in the arts, $1.70 came back to the state of New York. Now, I'm, I don't know the equivalency between New York and Pennsylvania and how that would play out, but I would have to think that it's that it did, same type of analysis would be done and you would see that the arts are economic generators. And so it seems short-sighted to me whether my organization or not is benefiting from from the uh, the grants that just using the arts as an economic generator makes more sense than taking money away. And the thing that shocked me, uh, because I've been on many, many boards and, and, and that the, the small amount of money 
that is given by the city to the arts. Four million dollars was shocking to me when I first moved here. I mean, I, I, I came here not to get involved in trying to influence that, but I was like, this is crazy. This city is built on arts and culture. One of the reasons I moved from New York City to Pence, to Philadelphia, because of the arts and culture scene here. A lot of people I know come from New York or, or around the states because there's so many great arts and culture resources yeah. that this city has. Now, I would think that we would be looking to try to put more money, even though we're in a situation where there's huge deficits across the board, we would be looking to put more money in things that yeah. generate yeah. income than yeah. things that are, yeah, and it seems to be, why take money away from something that's generating income? Arts brings jobs here, and it's hundreds of organizations in the city of Philadelphia that get some, some form of grant uh, from these offices. Rebecca, I want to bring you back in. You've been part of the city finance department for years before becoming a controller. Can you talk about the importance of art? We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars here. Cherry, as you just mentioned, I was uh, the city's treasurer and then the city's budget director uh, for a total, those two positions of about eight years before I decided that I was going to run for office um, in 2017. I do have that background and that knowledge of the city's budget. I think um, the arts do generate economic uh, activity. Um, I think also what's important though, and Dana, you mentioned the small amount of funding that uh, uh, compared to the size of the city's budget and what that means. I mean, to me, it's about uh, smart decisions as a city. And if we're looking at, you know, a city has a $5 billion budget. If we can support the arts with a few million dollar line item, we should be doing that because that's part of being a world-class city. That's part of who we are exactly. as a city and, and how we move ourselves forward. So it's just, it's just smart, it, you know, decision-making to keep funding uh, the arts. And so, uh, when we look at, and that's why when I looked at it, I said, this doesn't make sense. Um, there's got to be a way to solve this budget and not eliminate these offices that, you know, or the arts and culture for four million or, you know, the film office. There's, there's all these um, items that don't take that much money in relation to the size of the budget, that it almost just seems like the message is, does the city care? And I don't think that's a message that city leaders want to give to, to the city, uh, to the arts community, but also to the world. Sharon, there's been a rally to, to, to change this, to, to shift things. You know, I'm really happy that we're talking about return on investment because the, you know, we consider the film industry to be an economic development um, organization. We, are, mm -hmm. we create jobs, we, we make money for the city. We like to think that uh, we know that we create jobs. We know that we're a great economic development. Sometimes we get lucky and we make art. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but but the, the thing that we do do is we do create family sustaining jobs. We have we have changed the, the way the city looks. The art the the um, annual historical return on investment of the film industry in Philadelphia has been. For every dollar that the city has invested into the as a grant to the film office, six hundred and thirty-eight dollars for every dollar. Why would you make it impossible for this industry to go forward when we're actually creating six hundred and thirty-eight dollars every year? That's a that's a historical average. 
And I think the lowest we've been is in 400, is in the, in the 420 something range for every dollar. So it just doesn't make sense. We're, we wanna be a part of the, of the solution. Um, we have a lot of young people who work in the film industry who love being here. They wanna be here with their families. But they're gonna have to pick up and go to Georgia where they have an uncapped tax credit and where they really get the film industry in other states. So if they'll go here, they'll go to New York, they'll go, they'll go to other places. And that doesn't make sense for our, for our talented, creative, hardworking young people to have to move to another place in order to work in the industry that they love. And since 2007 until 2019, the city invested in, in the film office, $2.2 million. Um, the direct spend in the city in those same years from 2007 to 2019 is a billion and almost a half, almost a billion and a half dollars. It's a billion, $443 million. One of the problems is people continually look at arts and have traditionally seen as art as just entertainment and that they, they don't see arts in economic terms. And we have to really fight to change that perception of what the arts does for a city other than you go to a gallery and see a painting on the wall or go to a movie and this is entertainment, but it's not necessary. Because they'll, they'll say it's not necessary. But when you start looking at funding children's classes of art classes, you, the film industry, you, and you don't look at it in the way of it being, you're defunding the city when you defund that. You have a problem and the thing is changing minds. It's not the data's not there. It's that you have to change the mindset for people to be able to understand what the arts actually do do. And I guess shows like this help. Rebecca, you do have an alternative that would save many of the, the very programs we're talking about. So I looked through it, the mayor's proposal, and said, okay, how could we solve this a different way? The value of the tax increases uh, is about, uh, for city and school district, because we have to look at what the school district needs as well, uh, is about 107 million. And then some of the more drastic cuts that we, we've been talking about, which include the arts, um, you need about another um, 10 to 15 million, I think, uh, to replenish those funds, whether, you know, to arts and workforce development. So I said, okay, let's, let's try to solve this and find 120 million in this budget. I outlined five steps that could be achievable um, for this budget. So the first one is, the mayor budgeted a $50 million deposit to a recession reserve for future recessions. And my thought is, we are in a crisis right now. We are in a recession. It does not make sense to, to deposit that money for a future recession. We need to use that. We also have other reserves called fund balance reserves that we can fall back on. So we need to use that deposit. That's 50 million right there. The second thing is overtime has just risen dramatically over the last five, six years. Overtime per employee adjusted for inflation has gone from $6,000 to $8,000 per employee in the city of Philadelphia. Fire department alone went from $14,000 an employee to $20,000 an employee. This is while employee levels have been increasing across departments. And that doesn't make sense. You should not, from a management standpoint, you should not have staffing levels rising and overtime rising because overtime is a management tool to deal with staffing shortages. So we estimated that if it was brought down back to 2011 levels, you could save 45 million a year. It takes effort, but it is completely realistic to do.
All you need is a coordinated effort to have people just say, you know what, we're gonna watch this. Then there's three other items um, that, that are uh, together total the 123 million. Uh, so, so I came up with that plan to say, there's a practical approach that we could do that could put money back into these programs. Sharon, when you hear that, you know, I know that there has been efforts to sort of uh, rally people around the film office to get testimony, to make sure that everybody knows when you hear that there are other ways uh, what has been the reaction in, in your community among your, the supporters of the film office? And what have you guys been doing to kind of push that agenda? We have been speaking to the press quite a lot. We've reached out to every single city council member to appeal to do things that make sense for our city and to bring the business back. You know, where our industry is ready, like, like I said, we fill hotel rooms in the winter, but we have two shows um, that were, that, have had to stop in March and they want to come back, start prepping, social distancing prepping in July and start filming in September. I don't know if you read what's going on in our industry, but there's a tremendous amount of very, very hard work on figuring out how to go back to work in the film industry. They want to come back. We, and so those are two big shows, an HBO show and an Apple show, which is my Chamalong show. So, so they're real, real world projects. Yeah. Can you even imagine that? I mean, what a great morale booster that will be for our city. Um, we, you know, we, in, in terms of the kinds of cuts that you were speaking about, Rebecca, um, you know, we, in back, way back in 1992, when Ed Rendell was started off as mayor and we created, we created the film office, he, um, we decided that the first two cops on any shoot day would be free. The first thing I said in my proposal to city council was, Charge them. Stop giving. We don't need cops <laughs> anymore. Just charge them. Um, you know, let's let's find ways where the the city and the film office, you know, can get like a daily permit fee, um, because they're charging those in every other city. We want to work with the administration. We don't think that we were directly targeted. We want to be a part of it, of the solution, and uh, and we have reached out to our community on social media and in direct mail. Uh, email and um, we are really appreciative of all of these people. There are thousands of them. A lot of the arts offices have been, a lot of arts groups, Danny, have been fighting as well. Uh, there have been rallies. I know there's petitions. Is that the same thing you're you're seeing from the arts community coming together? What, what I'm seeing more is really artists and people on the ground instead of organizations. I'm seeing reaction from people who are actually affected the artists and, and there are a lot of Philadelphia poets who had shows coming up and not do so I'm I'm really seeing the reaction of how it's affecting the lives of the actual people who work in the thing as 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 opposed to seeing how agencies are responding to it. A lot of people are we're trying to set up a lot of different ways to find ways to feed people who you know, there were a lot of art shows myself I I lost three art shows around the country that had been set up. People are losing actual income and livelihood, and it's affecting people's ability to pay their rent. So I'm hearing that more than I'm hearing what organizations are doing. But I've encouraged people to support the organizations instead of going to city council, empower the people who run agencies to speak in their behalf. So we need to empower our voices that the mayor can hear. We need to empower the controller, of course, and say the controller's proposal is amazing, and this solves the thing. 
You know, people need to, they need to understand that it's more than just numbers on paper. These are people's lives. And then it yeah. affects the tax base, all these things, restaurants, people can't buy anything. So I think the way I would go is empowering the people who they listen to. Because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap up, but I want to talk about next steps. Right now, you know, this budget that is out there is just a proposal. The next step is advocacy. The next step is hearings. The next step mm -hmm. is duking it out. How do we shift the pendulum here uh, to save the different aspects of the Philadelphia culture, art scene that, that folks care about and love? My alternative proposal was sent to city council. Um, they have it. What I wanted to do mm -hmm. from my position as the city controller and as the financial watchdog is to say that the mayor's proposal is just that. It's a proposal. And that there is an alternative. We do not have to decimate the arts. We do not have to decimate workforce development. Um, and we do not have to raise taxes right now. I mean, all of that is not necessary. And mm -hmm. I also argue, let's get through this budget cycle with the most minimal impact. That's the goal, is to not make it worse. It's already bad for people right now. Just to put it out there, there are other proposals as well. And thank you to you, Sharon Pinkinson. Thank you to Danny Simmons. And thank you to Rebecca Reinhardt for coming on Flashpoint and talking about you. Thank Great you to be here today. Thank you so much. Next up, the Pennsylvania primary will be unlike any election day we've seen. COVID-19 has affected our election day plan in a way that it has never affected anything before. Changes slated to happen in Philly on June 2nd and why a mail-in ballot may be the best option. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the Cos out of jail early. All of this and more, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker of the week is the Pennsylvania primary. The coronavirus crisis interrupted this election and campaign season, pushing Election Day from April 28th to June 2nd. And this will be the first time that voters in the Commonwealth can vote by mail. So how do you get a vote by mail ballot? And what will Election Day look like in Philadelphia? With us to discuss is Philadelphia City Commissioner Omar Sabir. Commissioner Sabir, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having me. I feel honored. The June 2nd primary is coming. There's in-person voting, but the city and the state is trying to get more people to do the mail-in ballots. Yes, that's correct. We want to try to eliminate spread of our COVID-19. And so you can vote in the safety and the comfort of your own home. The June 2nd election will look like election that you have never, ever seen before. So again, we encourage you to stay home, stay safe, and you know, vote from home. Deadline is coming up and you guys have been asking people to apply as soon as possible. How does the process for applying for a mail-in ballot work? If you have a driver's license or Pennsylvania issued ID, you can go to votespa.com 
and apply for your vote by mail application. If you don't have a ID or you don't have a driver's license, you can call 877-VOTES-PA and then they'll send you an application or you can download that paper application to fill it out and then return it to the city commissioner's office by May the 26th at 5 p.m. Cannot take postmarks. So that's very important that you know by Tuesday, we have to have your completed vote by mail application in order for us to process your ballot. You talk about the security measures in place because a lot of people are afraid of putting things in mailboxes because they have no idea what happens once they drop off their ballot. One of the things you got to realize is that the post office, you know, they're a trusted way how uh, we receive mail, you know, for over hundreds of years. You know, I tell people all the time, every first of the month I receive a blue envelope. You know, I receive a a PGW bill. I received the PICO bill. So the post service, it was working like everything else inspected with COVID-19. You know, things probably going to run just a little bit slower, but I feel confident the post office can, can get the ballots where they need to be at. You also can check and verify whether or not we have received your ballot. Every ballot has a barcode. So when we receive each ballot, it's scanned into our system and you have a number that you can trace, even with your vote by mail application. If you apply online, you receive a confirmation number. So you can check this confirmation number the same exact way as if you purchase something from Amazon. It's simple, it's safe, it's secure. You know, election mail has priority on it when they see those ballots. They make sure that, you know, they get to where they need to get to. Recently, it was announced that there will be less in-person polling places for people to go to. How drastically is the number of polling places going to be reduced? It's very drastic. Normal election, we have 831 polling locations. Now we have 188 polling locations. COVID-19 has affected our election day plan in a way that it has never affected anything before. We had a significant amount of polling locations that were in nursing homes and senior facilities. So we had to cancel all of those polling locations off the top. Then we had to cancel all of the uh, fire uh, houses. Then we had to cancel polling locations that was very tight, where you couldn't practice social distance we have a stay-at-home order until June the 4th. Phone locations are only open for people that have disabilities that prevent them from writing and filling out a vote-by-mail ballot. You want to keep as less people as possible coming out uh, to vote in, in person. However, we will have our polling locations open. Every registered voter will receive a voter ID card. It'll be mailed to them to tell them where their polling location is. And also, you can go to philadelphiavotes.com. You can find out where your polling location is. We will have signage on old polling locations informing the public of where their new polling location is. And so there are going to be people who are not going to do mail-in ballots. And there are probably going to also be people who don't get their ballot in time because they waited to the last minute. What can they expect when they go to these 188 polling locations? First, I want to tell you, I want to be, be patient. If you go to the bank, if you go to uh, Trader Joe's, you know, sometimes you might have to sit outside, you know, and wait, you know, because we're trying to practice social distance. The average voter is 60 years old, and the average poll worker is over 60. We will have face masks. We will have gloves. I know there was a lot of concerns about, okay, if I do go to person, how does it all work? You know, are we going to use the same ink pens? You know, will we distribute uh, ink pens? If you want to bring your own uh, ink pen, uh, that's, that's highly recommended. It's going to be an intense situation. There could be long lines if you're used to having hundreds and almost a thousand uh, polling places in Philadelphia, and now you're less than 200. People might as well just bring a snack and just realize you're going to be in line for a while. And we're trying to minimize that. Our polling location uh, investigation unit, they did a significant job of trying to find uh, appropriate polling locations. Uh, they'll be larger than what they typically were. Like, you know, they'll be in school gyms, 
so we could put, you know, all the machines inside of one spot and practice social distancing. We'll see. I mean, it's the first time we've done it. So we'll evaluate the data and we'll make any improvements that need to be uh, made for November. Yeah. And what are the numbers looking like as far as folks applying for the alternative? That's the, the mail-in ballot. On April 11th, we had about 40,000 processed. We received that information. We started doing campaigns on social media, starting this grassroots campaign. We're up to 160,000 uh, Philadelphians that applied. So that's a pretty good number in comparison to 2016. In total, we had 400,000 people uh, vote, and we had a contested primary with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. So we anticipate to be up possibly to about 200,000 out of profile mail, then whatever we get in person. So we're not really that far off, you know, being though it's a pandemic and it's an uncontested uh, primary race for the presidency. So people can register through May 26th. Their mail-in ballot request uh, application needs to be sent in by that date. We're teaming up with Black clergy and the local state senators. We're having uh, places where you can actually drop off your vote-by-mail application this weekend because we realize if you know, it's a holiday coming up on Monday. So if you pitch your vote by mail, your paper application uh, in the mail right now, it's probably not going to get to us by May the 26th. So we're offering drop-off locations where you actually drop off your vote by mail applications. Or if you want to contact our office, we can have someone from our office uh, go pick up your vote by mail uh, ballot application. Is there a website that you guys are going to post it on or a Facebook page? Uh, we'll post it on philadelphiavotes.com. Wonderful. So I want to thank you so much to you, uh, Commissioner Omar Sabir, for coming on Flashpoint. And get your mail-in ballot dropped off or turned in by May 26th. Thank you so much. No problem. Next up, they advocated for the lupus community. It came under threat during the pandemic. Our medication supply rapidly became into a shortage situation. A tri-state area foundation marks Lupus Awareness Month. We'll be right back. Back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we're all about community. It's Lupus Awareness Month, and a local foundation is wearing purple, providing virtual education events and advocating for the lupus community during the pandemic. Here to tell us more is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Lupus Foundation of America, Philadelphia Tri State Chapter, and CEO, Cindy Messerly. Cindy, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having me. So for those who don't know about the Lucas Foundation, tell us what you do in this tri-state area. The Lucas Foundation of America, Philadelphia Tri-State Chapter, is, uh, represents Eastern Pennsylvania, South Jersey, and all of Delaware. And our mission as an organization is to improve the quality of life for all those affected by lupus. So we offer programs of education, support, advocacy, research, and uh, really just try to overall support our lupus community throughout the region. Wonderful. And how has the COVID-19 crisis impacted your organization and the community you serve? Living with lupus, which is a chronic autoimmune disease of inflammation, um, puts people at a higher risk. So any type of autoimmune disease, really when your immune system is compromised in any way, shape or form, puts you at an increased risk for any kind of virus, especially something as significant as COVID-19. So uh, we're at an increased risk just by nature of having lupus. And then additionally in March, when the um, the, the world started hearing about hydroxychloroquine and the possible connection as a, as a COVID treatment, 
our, our medication supply rapidly became uh, into a shortage situation. So um, hydroxychloroquine is a drug that a lot of people with uh, lupus and autoimmune diseases in general will take as a first-line treatment. And it's, a, it's typically a go-to treatment because it, it has a very good effect on people with an autoimmune disease. So that being said, we've got a lot of people on that drug that couldn't access their medications. So fortunately, our, our foundation at, at a national level and locally, all of our chapters rallied uh, around the lupus community and really jumped into an advocacy support situation to ensure that our community had the drugs that they so needed on a daily basis. So, and so you guys were just perfectly in place to kind of make sure uh, that your community got what they needed. Yes. On average, a typical month of prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine would be around 15,000 prescriptions a month, you know, across the country. Um, and it jumped to well over 100,000 prescriptions just in the month of March. So you can, you can imagine what that did to the supply chain, to the availability for people who rely on this to get their medications without warning. It was, it was important to reach out to State Board of Pharmacies, to the, the COVID task force, to the White House, to the to NIH, to CDC, to any any other organization um, that that we could re, you know really connect with to make sure that policies and procedures and restrictions were put in place so the people with RA and lupus who specifically take this medication got it when they needed it. Wow, what did you learn from this? I mean, because I know that was an unexpected emergency. That our lupus community is extremely resilient, uh, that it's important to stay on top of our medications, right? To, to not let them go to the last minute and, and to, to be able to access refills. In hindsight, it's not necessarily the drug that's, that's working for COVID-19 as, as we've such learned, um, but we have learned how important it is to, to really be mindful, I think, of, of what what's being exposed to the world, what's being told to the world. A lot of people started taking it proactively unnecessarily, right? Thinking that it's going to prevent them from getting COVID and that's not the case. Yeah. And so lupus awareness, what are you guys working on to let people know about lupus, especially right now when many, many people are focused on their health? So May is Lupus Awareness Month. We celebrated Put on Purple Day last Friday, which we asked everybody to wear purple. And of course, we want people to wear purple and celebrate lupus awareness all month long. Um, but we did have an actual Put on Purple Day last Friday, which was fun to see so many people and, and news stations and, and people sporting their purple and telling people why. Lupus has a very low awareness. People understand they've heard of it. Um, they don't really understand the scope of what it is and to the extent of it being a chronic disease and there's no cure and no known cause. So raising awareness is really important. Um, we've changed a lot of our educational programs to virtual formats and digital formats. So we've been offering various programs throughout the month. Uh, we have a, an exercise program coming up next week that we're gonna do kind of a midday stretch and a midday um, program. So just lots of fun different things to try and energize the community and, and raise awareness while we're doing it. Amazing. And so how can people get more information? Oh, lupustristate.org. We would love for you to visit our website. There's all kinds of educational information, ways to, to um, participate, whether it's a virtual event. Um, maybe we'll be live and in person in our walks come spring. Maybe not. Not sure. Uh, but we're, we're still going forward as planned at this point in time. So we're going to hope for the best and, and adjust otherwise, but lupustristate.org is a great way to reach us for educational programs, fundraisers, events, or just general information. 
Wonderful. And as we get ready to close out, are there things that people should be thinking about specifically? Do Because I know lupus is a hard to diagnose uh, disorder. You're absolutely right. Um, on average, it can take six years to be diagnosed appropriately. Um, so what, what do you want to pay attention to? 90% of those affected are women uh, mm. between the ages of 15 and 44. So we don't know why. We're still, lots of research is happening around that. And you're two to three times more likely to be a woman of color. Um, as opposed to a Caucasian woman to be diagnosed with lupus. So um, symptoms are, are joint pain, fatigue, and if, you, if you're really just not feeling well and you just can't figure it out, really recommend just going to your physician and talking to them about a potential autoimmune disease going on. There's so many that, that are out there and they mimic each other sometimes, so it can be very challenging to diagnose. Stay with it, give us a call, get, you know, check out our website. If you're, if you're challenged with some symptoms that you think might be lupus, uh, but we'll be happy to provide you some direction. Yeah, and people are home right now. It's like, you know, take a listen to your body, pay attention to some things. Um, this is our time where we're slow down, we're not so distracted. So perfect, perfect opportunity uh, and stay well. All right, thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news. I really appreciate you. Well, thank you for, for helping us to raise awareness. We do appreciate it, that's for sure. We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. Flashpoint is produced by Cherry Gregg and associate producer Ariane Fulcher. Thanks for listening. That's it for the Flashpoint podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there is an issue that makes you hot and the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As French impressionist artist Edgar Degas once said, Art is not what you see, but what you make others see. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.